Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Wednesday, August 3rd. Now, our climate story of the week. This week, we'll take a closer look at a confusing duality in the big new climate bill that West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin has now agreed to vote yes on. The duality is that the bill is being hailed as potentially transformative for emission reductions in the United States, and yet it also contains provisions to encourage more production of fossil fuels. What? Here's Senator Manchin on that on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday. If you're producing more and have more demand, more supply, and that supply drives basically uh, satisfies demand, and then the prices come down because there's more people shopping for the products, that's all, that's capitalism, that's who we are. Which is why the bill is called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, not the Climate Protection Act of 2022. Let's take a closer look with none other than Bill McKibben, longtime climate activist, co-founder of the climate-focused environmental group 350.org, a Middlebury College professor, and a New Yorker magazine staff writer. His new article on the New Yorker site says the bill reflects the growing strength of the environmental movement, but also the lingering influence of the fossil fuel industry. Bill, thanks for coming on for this. Always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Always a pleasure to be with you, friend. We'll get to some of the contradictions or fossil fuel protections in the bill, but you write that taken as a whole, the bill is a triumph. Why do you use the word triumph? Well, in the first place, it's mere existence. You know, the the U.S. Congress found out before anybody else about climate change. Jim Hansen, uh, from his office at 110th and Broadway, uh, in the 1980s, uh, figured out what was going on in the planet's climate. And in 1988, he went to the U.S. Congress to tell them. And that day in June of 1988 was the kind of launch of the public phase of the global warming era, the first time that really all of us found out what was happening. In the intervening, what, 34 years, that U.S. Congress has done precisely nothing about climate change. There's never been a major climate bill. The two big attempts in the past, one in the 1990s, the other in 2009 and 10, to pass major legislation, both failed abysmally. This one looked like it was going to fail too. Um, and, And a couple of weeks ago, almost everybody had given it up for dead. But Uh, Some credit here to Chuck Schumer and some credit here to the extraordinary environmental advocates at the Sunrise Movement. People kept pushing and this compromise deal has emerged. It is, as you say, very far from perfect, but it does represent a huge chunk of money going directly where we need it to the uh, uh, to renewable energy to building out sun and wind and batteries to making buildings more efficient to putting up ev chargers basically to providing the bones to build out what's now the cheapest and cleanest form of power on earth renewable energy and of course we don't actually know if this bill is going to pass yet senator cinema from arizona has yet to declare But you're right that the bill contains hundreds of billions of dollars in tax credits and grants for the transition to solar and wind power, 
electric vehicles, efficient home heating, and more. Do you know yet if our listeners will be able to take advantage of any of those grants or tax credits as individuals, or if these are all incentives for um, corporations and governments to transition production to more sustainable fuel sources? Some of it's for individuals, too. For instance, there's a lot about uh, tax credits for uh, uh, and rebates for electric vehicles. And some of it's very arcane and some of it depends on, you know, you get more rebates depending on where the vehicle was made and where the ingredients in the battery came from and, and on and on and on. So the policy wonks who worked on this, uh, well, they were wonkish. And the the hope is, and what all the predictions that anyone's published over the last few days are, that it would allow the U.S. to reduce its emissions by the end of the decade about 40% below what they were in 2005. It's not as much as we need to do, but it's a lot more than we would be doing otherwise. You also cite that for the next decade under this bill, no offshore wind lease can be sold unless an offshore oil and gas lease of a certain size has been sold in the previous year. I think what actually is, it has, what, in, until it, unless an offshore gas lease has been offered in the previous year. Offered. And the so, hope is... So what does that, that mean? Well, the hope is increasingly that those offers will go untaken. You may recall at the end of the Trump years, he tried very hard to rush through in the last weeks in office, uh, for instance, the right to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. But when they put it up for auction, nobody bid because environmental movements and indigenous people had managed to make that prospect so toxic that no driller and no bank or whatever was willing to go in and say, we're going to be the ones that rip up the Arctic Wildlife Refuge for oil. And we've obviously got to do that same work, you know, with place after place uh, around the around the world. In fact, that was some of the work that we were about yesterday in New York City uh, with the comptroller Brad Lander, uh, who is beginning to figure out how to mobilize uh, the city's vast portfolio of funds to put pressure on precisely those banks and asset managers to stop fossil fuel expansion. We may not be able to do that in the Senate because we don't have the votes, but we may be able to do it on Wall Street because, well, because blue states and blue cities have a lot of money. And if it's uh, pointed in the right direction, it it could be really valuable. So yeah, using those for that. huge pension funds to uh, put pressure on corporate America to do the right thing by deciding some social standards for for those investments. You write that the political trade-off of this whole bill is worth it in carbon terms, but it will set a problematic example around the world. What's the international implication here? Well, there's two international implications. The good one, and it's really important, is that the U.S. is back as a actual player, maybe even a leader in the climate fight. This was supposed to happen a year ago. You'll remember there was this huge climate conference in Glasgow, and uh, as the way the script was written, <laughs> Build Back Better was supposed to pass last fall, and then Joe Biden would fly to Glasgow with this thing in his back pocket and slam it down on the table and say, you know, Russia, China, India, how do you like them apples? You know, match us. Um, 
Instead, it didn't pass last year. And so Biden showed up with nothing. Um, and that's the biggest reason that conference just fizzled. This year's version, which is set for November in Egypt, will be more interesting than it would otherwise have been, thanks to this new development. But, uh, you know, our insistence that we're going to go on, uh, Manchin's insistence that the U.S. has to go on uh, offering up leases for new oil and stuff, will just, you know, our people around the world are going to say, if the U.S. can do that, why can't we? The example I used in that New Yorker piece was Congo, which last week, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo announced that they were going to offer drilling rights across the uh, the rainforest, the second biggest rainforest on Earth. Uh, this is insane. I mean, not only does it produce lots more oil to add carbon to the atmosphere, it cuts down one of the biggest sinks for carbon on the planet. It, you know, it's like not only adding fuel to the fire, it's like chopping the fire hose in half. But I mean, how are we going to tell the Congolese not to do this? The average Congolese uh, produces about one five hundredth as much carbon pollution as the average American. And yet if we can't rein in our appetite to expand this industry, it's a little much to ask that they do so. So in, there's endless more work to be done here. No in, doubt. In that, that in that New Yorker piece and your reference to the Congo, you quote Congo's longtime climate representative telling, I guess it was the New York Times last month, that his priority is fighting poverty not to save the planet. And I wonder if you'd reflect on that for a second as a global tension between worthy goals, you know, anti-climate change and anti-poverty. And if it's different, you think, in the affluent United States than it is in Congo, obviously it's different. But the tension even here is usually framed as between long-term climate protection, which people consider important, and short-term economic pain, like inflation at the gas pumps, which is real economic pain. So does the, does the Manchin-supported bill strike a kind of compassionate balance, or how would you frame it? Well, here's, what, here's how I'd think about it. First of all, I mean, look— <laughs> When one talks about poverty in places like the Congo, the numbers are so incredible that it's hard for us to even sort of imagine what that means. Uh, the, the, the per capita income is a hundredth of ours. Um, I mean, we're talking, you know, absolute and dire poverty. But, but the best way, as everyone has now figured out to deal with that, uh, uh, is to not to burn more fossil fuel. Uh, a, that just enriches a few elites in these countries. And, and if you look across Africa, you see case after case of how it impoverishes even further the whole of the country. But B, renewable energy is what offers a real way out. Uh, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker a couple of years ago. Uh, I spent a lot of time across both West and East Africa uh, watching as solar power has now become cheap enough that it can be deployed to start bringing energy for the first time to the billion people around this planet who are still without electricity, still off the grid. Not only does it provide power for them, doing it that way uh, also makes sure that uh, people avoid the health effects that come with combustion. You know that big study last year demonstrated that just breathing the particulates from burning coal and gas and oil kills 9 million people a year on this planet. That's more than COVID. That's more than HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, uh, uh, war, uh, terrorism combined. I mean, uh, 
the, the, the level of the level of um, human development that will go with clean renewable energy is remarkable and it allows us to think optimistically for once about the future but we've got to get there and we've got to get there fast this bill helps in the context of the united states or the whole world look going to renewable energy fast saves us huge amounts of money think about it for a moment if you if you if you power your civilization by burning gas or coal well every day you burn up the gas and coal and you've got to go find some more and pay for it that costs a lot if you power your civilization with sun and wind yeah it costs some money to put up the wind turbine or the solar panel but once you've done it well the sun delivers the energy for free every morning when it rises above the horizon that's why the economists say that it would save us trillions and tens of trillions of dollars to rapidly move to a renewable energy economy and it's also why exxon et al fight it so hard from their point of view brian that's the stupidest business model on earth <laughs> you know the sun delivering energy for free you know who, who would want that not someone who owns an oil well or a coal mine that's for sure maybe the sun can patent it patent itself <laughs> tristan in brooklyn you're on wnyc hi tristan thanks for calling in Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I had a question about the this news that broke yesterday about a, a side legislation that got Joe Manchin over that would um, expedite oil and gas projects and would specifically expedite a project in West Virginia for a new gas pipeline and just how that fits into this pros, cons of this bill and just the general what feels a little bit like, you know, just free giveaways to the fossil fuel industry. They absolutely are free giveaways, Tristan. Um, and the Mountain Valley Pipeline seems to have been Mansion's pound of flesh here, or one of them. Uh, and they're gross. Um, um, but that's what happens when you have, you know, when you have a balance of power like we have. The balance of power has gotten better between the climate movement and the fossil fuel industry. That's why there's a bill of any kind instead of nothing like we've had for 34 years. But the balance of power isn't strong enough to do all the things we should be doing. Uh, that's why they're still able to get lots of gifts and giveaways. Uh, they're very strong. They own one of our political parties. Not a single Republican senator would vote for this thing. And, uh, you know, they own enough of Joe Manchin <laughs> that, that they've been, you know, using him as their, uh, as their proxy in this battle. So uh, that's just how it works, you know. And it's why it was so important yesterday to have Brad Lander come out and say, not only was New York going to use its power, its money power to try and stand up to fossil fuel expansion, but he was going to try and enlist uh, uh, treasurers and comptrollers from other parts of the country. Um, this is really important because that may be a way that we're able to stand up to some of these projects, even the ones that Manchin uh, has managed to get into this bill. Tristan, thanks for the call. Now, this is the Inflation Reduction Act, we should remember. And we played that Joe Manchin clip at the beginning, arguing it will bring down energy prices by getting more energy into production more quickly. Is any of that from a projected increase in supply of renewables in the short term, not just supply of fossil fuels in the short term? 
Yeah, I mean that's the the actual increase, the actual inflation reduction uh, that it produces will come precisely because renewable energy is cheaper than fossil energy, and if you get more of it, it should drive down the total price of energy. Um, that's the real hope. Um, you know, going and building out some new oil field, you know, over the next five years someplace isn't going to bring down the price of gas at the moment. Uh, uh, what'll, what will bring down uh, the price of energy is rapid, rapid expansion of, of renewables because it's so much cheaper. Look, we're at a moment when it's actually possible to imagine that our planet's 200,000 year career of our species, 200,000 year career of setting stuff on fire could come to an end. We now know how to take full advantage of this large ball of burning gas that the good Lord hung 93 million miles up in the sky. And if we do that, then the future is, well, the future looks brighter than it did a few days ago. Nick in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC with Bill McKibben. Hi, Nick. Uh, hi. Um, I don't know if Bill McKibben can shed light on this, but I was just wondering why fossil fuel companies who clearly have the means to do so haven't invested in alternative energies only because it takes a certain technology to transform solar and hydro and wind into electricity and, and more practical things that we use. Um, why it's, why don't these companies you know take it it's the perfect that? question it's the perfect question nick um especially since we now know from great investigative reporting companies like exxon knew all about climate change back in the 1980s and they could have been you know stolen a, a march on everyone and and been the pioneers here but the reason they didn't has been made pretty clear over time in fact their executives have said it you can make money putting up solar wind power and they'll plenty of people will become millionaires and billionaires doing it but you can't make the same kind of money that you can from fossil fuel just for the reason that i said before uh, uh that that the sun delivers it for free instead of you having to write a check to exxon month after month your whole life and so that's why they've fought so hard to keep it from happening there was a study that came out last week that showed that over the last 50 years, the fossil fuel industry has made $3 billion a day in profit. It's been the most profitable business. It's riding a boom right now because, uh, you know, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, with whom most of the big energy companies have done business quite happily for many years, has, with his barbarity, driven up the price of fossil fuel. So they're getting a temporary boom. It'll, uh, with any luck, it'll be the last boom that they'll ever get like that. But that's why they not only didn't invest in this stuff, it's why they spent 30 years funding a massive effort to make sure no one else did to deny climate and to keep us from making these kind of shifts it's a truly tragic story and and we would be in a completely different place i mean look uh, brian was joking about it earlier if there was some way for exxon to own the sun they probably would have done this and and maybe maybe we'd be f further ahead but the good news now is exxon doesn't own the sun 
And so when we build out renewable energy, nobody, not Vladimir Putin, not the king of Saudi Arabia, not the Koch brothers, not anybody will be able to, you know, keep the sun from shining or the wind from blowing. You can't patent the sun, but there is a solar panel industry and otherwise a solar power industry. There is a wind power industry. Somebody has to make the windmills and the turbines and all of this. Um, and so I think the caller's question even still applies. And for all I know, because I haven't looked into it, the major fossil fuel companies who probably see themselves as energy producers are investing in these things so they're they not, can have investing. all the means of production or are uh, they not? They're not really. They're investing tiny, tiny percentages of their capex, uh, one or two percent. And mostly they're just continuing to do what they know best because they cannot make the same return. They can't make as much money. So their decision has been, we will cling to our existing business model as long as possible. If you look back through history, it's pretty rare for incumbent industries to uh, be the ones that lead you into the next technology. It wasn't the guys who made carriages for horses that figured out how to make cars, you know. Um, um, and, and that's because people cling to their old ways of doing things. Uh, meanwhile, you know, sharp-eyed young entrepreneurs are figuring out how to bring us what comes next. And there are lots of them, and this bill will help them. Uh, uh, that's the best argument for it. It'll provide them with uh, some of the capital they need to take on uh, these uh, behemoths of, of uh, I mean, you could almost literally call them dinosaurs since mm. that's part of what they're digging up to burn. One more call. Bernadine in Garden City. You're on WNYC with Bill McKibben on our Climate Story of the Week. Hi, Bernadine. Hello. Big fan of you, Bill, and uh, of you, Brian, as well. Uh, Bill, I recently read your book review in uh, the New York Review of Books of Griffin's book, Electrify. And in it, you mentioned that he is not for the uh, development of additional nuclear power plants. And I'm wondering where you stand on that. We've been talking about fossil and about yeah, yeah. renewables. What about nuclear? Well, then there's some money in this bill for nuclear power, too. Um I think we probably should be doing research about new generations of nuclear power. And I think we probably uh, should be keeping open those nuclear power plants that we've already built that we can run safely. But my guess is, Bernadine, that it's going to be a small part of the answer. And the reason has everything to do with money. Uh, the price of renewable energy has plummeted in the last decade. It's dropped 90% over 10 years. But the price of nuclear energy has gone up. And and that's because it's a you know huge centralized production operations. It's possible that as we move at some point to small modular reactors, they'll get cheap enough to compete. But I think my guess is that it's that big nuclear reactor in the sky uh, that's going to be providing most of the energy on which we depend. We will leave it there, listeners. Now you know more of what's in the, oh, it's not a climate protection bill. I keep forgetting. It's the Inflation Reduction Act that Joe Manchin has now agreed to, but that is a triumph, as Bill McKibben puts it in his New Yorker magazine article, for climate protection, the first major piece of climate legislation in the 34 years 
since James Hansen of NASA first uh, blew the whistle in this country or sounded the alarm in this country about the global warming that scientists were seeing coming. They have finally broken the logjam. There will be, Bill and other environmentalists say, major emission reductions from this bill, even as it contains the duality that we've been talking about, that it also offers protections to the fossil fuel industry. Bill McKibben is a co-founder of the pro-climate group 350.org, teaches at Millbury, Middlebury, and is a New Yorker staff writer where he wrote this up after the mansion announcement. Bill, we always appreciate it. Thank you so much. A real pleasure, friend. Take care. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.